So, welcome. Can you all hear me okay? Okay, good. So this is... Um, um, last full day of the retreat. And... Um, just want to just acknowledge all of your um, very sincere and uh, your sincere practice and your effort and it's very inspiring. It's a nice view up here as you look out sometimes. Though of course as I look out sometimes we can see all the heavens and the hells with the faces and the body. It's all here. I think I may have said earlier that um, I feel like this this uh, work on ourselves is some of the most noblest of works and some of the most difficult, uh, meeting our own mind and heart. Sometimes I consider meditation to be walking into a hall of mirrors, starring me, myself, and I. I, I, I. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly, the whole Megillah is there. There's just no doubt about it. And it's very r rare in some ways that we're making this time to look inside. And there was an observation that was written in the year 399. That's a long time ago, 399, by St. Augustine. And he says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains, at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the river, the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder at the circular motion of the stars and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. And um, here in this retreat we're um, looking more within, not walking past ourselves, but looking more within. It's a very deep work. And of course, sometimes um, what we may see can be a little bit uncomfortable. This was an observation written by a Christian monk in the Middle Ages, and um, there's actually some I love some of the graphic language here of the Middle Ages. But uh, it ends with some hope. <laughs> so bear in mind. He says, as the light increases, and we'll use the word light to meaning awareness, mindfulness, paying attention on purpose to what's happening in the body and mind. He says, as the light increases, we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. Sound familiar? We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. <laughs> That's the middle age, middle age language. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a cave. We could have never believed that we'd harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them arise. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them can wax brighter and we can be filled with horror. 
So here comes the good news. <laughs> it says, bear in mind for your comfort. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Bear in mind for your comfort we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Very beautiful teaching. And as we've been learning to turn into our pain, our shame, our fear, our anger, our sadness, our joy, the mystery, the whole Megillah, we begin to perhaps find our hearts a bit, some deeper understanding as we begin to embrace what's within us. So Jennifer Wellwood, she says, and this is really comes out of her own practice, it has to, because these words can come out any other way. As she says, I, I'm willing to experience aloneness. She opening into the aloneness. Opening into the aloneness. I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear. I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition that I flee from, it pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome transforms me. It's a very powerful teaching. In some ways, this practice feels counterintuitive. It's just turning into what's there. Without wisdom, each condition I flee from, it pursues me. The Dharma says you can travel from one end of the world to the other and your life will follow you wherever you go. As the Grateful Dead would say, you can run, but you can't hide. And so this turning in is the hero's journey, the yogi's journey. What appears to be a garbage dump that's what sometimes entering your retreat, like what's my nickname for the first couple of days of retreat, going to the garbage dump, starring me, myself, and I with all my hindrances flying like anything. That's why when I, I used to live in a Buddhist monastery, we had a nickname for it. We called it living in the shit accelerator. Because <laughs> everything just... <laughs> <laughs> Who used my toothbrush? Where's my sandals? They were at this door, another at the other door. And of course, sitting inside my own cooker my shame, my fear, my pain. But you know, if you tend the garbage well, it turns into compost, and the compost is what feeds the plants.
whatever I flee from pursues me, whatever I begin to welcome can begin to transform me. So perhaps those of us that are spiritual practitioners that really want to know the truth to make peace, maybe what others might think to be bad news as we come up against our shame, our fear, our pain, the places that we don't want to look at is considered to be bad news actually for perhaps for one that wants to really know the truth, that is really interested in the places that they're caught, where they're getting stuck, it's actually good news. Because it's showing us at times with deep clarity where we're holding back, where we're not seeing clearly, where we actually perhaps need to bring more attention to. <laughs> and so we're in this journey to understand more about our hearts, to gain more insight, more wisdom, more compassion. And it's through these practices of developing the continuity of mindfulness in our day-to-day -day activities, in our postures, bringing awareness to the breath, into the body, into the feelings, into the states of mind. So this foundations of mindfulness covers the gamut of what it is to be a human being that we're bringing our awareness to. And in this way, we can begin to learn about ourselves. To me, one of the most beautiful renderings of why we meditate comes from a Chilean poet. His name is Pablo Neruda. And he writes about what would it be like if the whole world could just stop for 12 seconds. And in the middle of the poem, he says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing. Perhaps this huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. I think that's one of the most beautiful definitions of why we sit, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves and each other with death. This was the vigil of the Buddha when he awakened to the realization that it's not going to last. This set him on this journey. What is this life? And as mentioned, he left the kingdom and he studied with all of these different teachers and many places he mastered the meditation practices that were taught to him. And at that time, it was mostly concentration, absorption, unification, samatha. So much so that he mastered them, the teacher would say, come sit next to me, you can teach with me, you know everything I know. But the Buddha still didn't, or I should say at the time, his name was Siddhartha Gautama, still did not understand about this life.
even though he could calm his mind down, develop deep absorption. So then he went and practiced self-mortification with ascetics, thought this would be the way, punishing the body until he was near collapse when he fasted to have only just one grain of rice a day. Eventually he put his hand on his belly and almost feel his tailbone and understanding the futility of the punishing of the body nourished himself back to health and took his seat underneath a great tree and decided taking a firm resolve that there's no other teacher or teaching to go to and that I'm going to just stay here and I'm going to stay here till the skin falls off my bones. There's nowhere else to go and I'm going to stay here and see what happens. I want to understand this life. And it said that he recalled early in that sit a memory of when he was younger, a boy, and sitting underneath another tree on a very beautiful day. And it was one of those like Santa Cruz type days, just so beautiful. We get a lot of these really incredible days around here. And he was feeling like just the calmness and the beauty of nature and life and the connectedness of things. And then on a field nearby, he was looking out and he saw like some farmers with oxen and plows and they were getting ready to break into the soil to turn it over. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened as the blade of the plow went into the earth, his sensitivity perhaps so heightened that he almost sensed or felt or heard the cries of the worms being cut apart. And it was left with this juxtaposition of the fragility of this life and the preciousness. I think we all know about this. I was talking with someone earlier today, like, you know, when she was younger, it was, life was just so amazing. And then in one moment, a sibling got killed and life changed. I mean, it's hard to believe that this can happen. And this type of realization, things can change. And this was, the, this was what brought the awakened Siddhartha on fire. What is this life? Now we come here for many reasons, not be because of that reason of a death, but we come here for some reasons. As I mentioned the other day, you know, there's a lot going on underneath the hood here that brings us here, our life. And how noble of you to really want to come here and to sit with yourself, to sit with the fear, the pain, the confusion, the joy, the, the whole gamut of being a human being. So Siddhartha took that vigil underneath that tree, recalling those memories. And of course, he knew how to absorb his mind into unification. And to some degree, he continued on. But perhaps because of the recalling of those memories, the fragility, the preciousness of life, something happened in the meditation practice where his approach to it, something changed. That's all I got to say. And perhaps it was that impact that he began to become aware of the changing nature of the breath rather than becoming at one with it. This penetration of impermanence, which is the hallmark of what we often teach in insight meditation, the beginning, the middle, the endings, that we're bringing awareness, Kim, 
led the practice today of open awareness, becoming aware of the beginning, middle, and endings of sounds, of sensations, of thoughts, emotions, the breath in, the breath out, this changing nature of things. And this gave rise to profound realizations about the nature of life that became known as the, the Four Noble Truths. And uh, to me, these um, it's, they're classically called the Four Noble Truths. I sometimes like to call them the Four Powerful Realizations about life. And the first truth is the, is the acknowledgement that there is indeed suffering in this world. It's not to be denied. It's actually kind of interesting. There's a bunch of Buddhist teachers that put down different definitions of the word suffering. I think we can relate to all of them. Anguish, anxiety, affliction, dissatisfaction, discomfort, discontentment, Misery, sorrow, stress, suffering. There's a long list. But this, it's, and, and, and but the Dharma teachings don't end there. But it begins there with this recognition, because that's what actually brought him on the path. If everything was peachy, rosy, creamy, who needs to go outside of the palace? I'll just stay there. He was offered everything. He had a palace for every season. And everything. But there wasn't enough. Because he knew about this. And so there's finally this profound and deep recognition of, of the satisfaction that there's suffering. And, uh, and that is to be named and to be acknowledged. But then the investigation got deeper into what is its cause. This is the second great realization. What is the cause of suffering? I'm going to really kind of focus on this a bit because this one to me is so important. It's been so enriching, this teaching in my own life that has um, been so beneficial to helping to a little eensy beensy bit lessen my suffering. The causes. And in the teachings of the Dharma, the primary cause of all suffering is unawareness, ignorance, not knowing, not seeing clearly. My old teacher, Tampu Lucero, used to say, midnight is dark, and the new moon is dark, and the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance of not knowing. If we don't know, the cycle continues on. If we know, we can break the cycle. This is a very simplified version of a teaching in the Dharma called Paticca Samapada, or the dependent origination, these dependent links. If this happens, that happens. That happens, this happens. The wheel of suffering, the causality of suffering. And, and the Sera used to say, as a simple way of understanding it, if you know about the cycle of suffering, if you know, you can break the cycle. If you don't know, you're going to go around and around. And so this awareness is so important because the awareness intercepts, interrupts the cascade of reactivity. Our reactive old habitual patterns that repeat themselves again and again because we're unaware. But once we become aware, once the light is turned on, we have more choices. We can begin to respond wisely rather than react unwisely. So this focus of awareness is incredible. It's actually the first factor of awakening. 
awareness and comes with that right away is investigation. I want to know. I want to get intimate. I want to understand what's here. And so the Buddha really wanted to understand what is these causes of suffering and, and discovered that unawareness, ignorance, is the primary cause. And because of it, unawareness or misconception, it leads to some perhaps some misconceptions and beliefs about where we can find our happiness. And the Buddha divided into three different areas that these misconceptions are of. The belief that I can find happiness through my sensual desires, belief that I can find happiness through being somebody, or the belief that I can find my happiness by just not, by turning away, by not feeling anything, just not having to feel something. You know, when I speak of, of these desires and cravings, I, I'm not wanting to say th that they're morally wrong. Because it's actually very natural for us as human beings to have desires. No matter whether you're in the red, or the blue, or the yellow, <laughs> or the black, most everyone, just like me, wants to feel safe, wants to feel secure, wants to be happy. The hows and means is another question. We can dis discuss that after the retreat. But um, the desire to be secure and to be safe is pretty universal all of us. But these types of, cra if we have a belief that something outside of us is going to make us happy, that's where it get becomes problematic because the very nature of desire is wanting something that you can't have. It's not there yet. It's elusive. So just the very acting of desiring something that you can't have creates a sense of dissatisfactoriness. It said in the Dharma that no fire is hotter than craving and greed, and no ice is colder than hatred, and no fog is thicker than ignorance. I love those teachings. Yeah. So I'll read you a quote from Achinamaro, an Englishman who's a monk in the Thai tra tradition. He gives a very beautiful rendering of the second noble truth, and he says that the second noble truth uh, is of the cause of suffering, and namely that it is craving, craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Anybody ever experience compelling and intoxicating craving? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> but you know what? As Amaro says, it causes us to be born into these things again and again and again. You know? It causes us, it fuels to be born into things again and again and again. And he says, namely, it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, or the craving to feel nothing. Yeah, this craving that is compelling and intoxicating, causing us to be born into things again and again, ever-seeking delight, now here and now there, namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing. It's a very powerful teaching. But what does that mean as we relate to it as regular human beings? 
What does that mean? And so sensual delight is this craving for, it's like eros to feel good, the libidinal desire to feel good. Eat things that taste good. And, you know, there's the sensual delights of sexuality, the sensual delights of um, even shopping. <laughs> there's different types of things that just feel so good. But rooted in the belief that this will make me happy, I remember one day eating my, I know some of you know this story, of eating my favorite ice cream, and I was just in ecstasy. I was at, well, I, I, I didn't even know if there was an I there. There was just the ice cream, and there was unification. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just in, na- in Nibbana. <laughs> an ignorant Nibbana. And um, it was great. You know, like when you get satiated with something that feels, doesn't it just feel so good? It's like satiation. You can see where the root of addiction comes from because it feels so good. I want it again. So everything was going really well with that bowl of ice cream. And then I noticed I had one friggin' bite left. (laughs) What the hell am I going to do now? I saw that arising within me, a sense of sadness, some type of despair, a type of, what am I going to (laughs) do? Just like the last TV show of the season, like how are you going to make it over the summer? (laughs) What are you going to do? I'm I'm exaggerating, but there's not exaggeration. We're laughing because we know this. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'll just get another bowl. I still have more in the freezer. I saw that, but I actually stopped there because I knew that was not going to do it. But that addictive quality, and part of it's like, I, you know, that when I'm in the land of satiation, there's no suffering. It, that's why I think I like it. I'm home, but there's no I there. There's just, just, but it's elusive because it, it's like holding water in your hands and it falls out your hands. You can't hold on to it. So addictive, these, th- you know, and also as a human being, I think we have that desire to be safe, to be secure, to, to feel at home. But where are we looking for? This is where I think the profound realization of the Buddha, where are we looking for this home? It slips away so quick. The last words of Crowfoot, a Blackfoot elder, he says, Life is like a flash of a firefly in the night. It's like a breath of a buffalo in the winter. It's like a little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself into the sunset. It's so fleeting. Yet we keep on trying to hold on. Kabir says, friend, tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and I keep on spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and I wore a robe, but then one day I noticed the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. Well, then I pull back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> this poem goes on for lifetimes. So 
So I, being that I like music, I put a theme song to this. It's from the Rolling Stones. I just can't get no satisfaction. No matter how much I try and I try and I try, I just can't get no satisfaction. The craving for sensual delight. And then there's the craving, of course, to be someone, to be somebody. I, 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 I. But actually, the I, to be somebody, can take on two roles. It can take the inflation role. Hi, I'm Bob. I'm special. I drive a Prius. Big deal. I'm teaching meditation. I hear I am on the stage. You're all looking at me. I know you're hot. Badass. (laughs) 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 But you know what? It ain't going to last. Because then I want you to write me some notes, leave them on the board, and tell me, this was a really great Dharma talk. And I'll read it, you know what, I'll really like it, and I'll think that I'm really a badass. But you know what, that's going to last about two minutes, because then that note will be over. Maybe I'll read it again. (laughs) But then I'll want another one. Because the truth of the matter is, I am absolutely dependent upon you for my self-worth, for my identity, for my sense of me. This is a profound realization into the causes of suffering. If I am dependent upon you for my happiness. It's funny, sometimes in life, like we all want to be somebody else, but the only one that we, actually everyone else is actually taken, sorry. (laughs) The only one that's not taking is ourself. Well, we haven't taken that yet. But it's this insidious inflation and deflation. There was a guy once who was taking a meditation treat with us and he was walking outside and like you looked at him, he was like lifting, moving place. He was like this incredible walking meditator. And he said during an interview, he said, you know, when I was walking, I realized that, looked around, he said to himself, I'm the best walking meditator in the entire <laughs> retreat. That lasted one second because then the other part came up. So the inflation and deflation, all of a sudden realizing a moment later, I am the worst meditator in the whole place. How could I ever think about that I was the best walking meditator (laughs) in the whole place? But this is the nature of where we can get caught. Inflation, I'm special or I'm not special. I'm deflation. Still caught in the same opposite axis. This belief that something outside of us can make us whole. And I think it is such a human desire for us to want to be seen, to be known, to be loved. Probably some of the most important work is mummies and daddies. We got a couple pregnant people around here, I know. And um, the gift that we can give our children to help preserve their sovereignty, that, that they Kids come in this way. They are so full of themselves. They haven't yet been shamed and cultured and developed. You know, like a, kid, a baby on the stage and giving you a Dharma talk, and if it poops, it could care less. <laughs> or if it laughs, it'll laugh. Or if it's crying, you know, just do what it does because babies just do those things. But then later we could, no, you got to behave this way, you got to behave that way. And, you know, inevitably at times we get shamed. We're made to feel less than, made to feel small. Begin to believe in, as Tara Brock calls, the, the trance of unworthiness. So it's very important for us to, with our raising of our children, to help support and nurture the sense of sovereignty. 
and perhaps with some wisdom, that we're no more special, but no less special than any other sentient being in the universe. Because part of that teaching, this teaching is the teaching of Ahimsa, that everything is sacred. The very first precept in the teachings of the Dharma is the sacredness of life. I undertake the training of not killing living beings. In Pali it's called Panatipata, which means um, literally I'm taking the vow of not taking away any being's breath. That's the literal translation, not taking away the breath of a being. So it's built into such a, a respect and reverence for all of life. So that comes with us. And at times we've lost that sense of our own um, Buddha nature or sovereignty. But no more so, no less so. But so long as I have the belief that somehow I need to get the support from you for the validation of my own self-worth, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. This leaving of ourselves. So there's a country western song, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. How brilliant of the Buddha to discover this nearly 2,600 years ago. These are these aspects of how with unawareness these misconceptions give rise to these types of looking for wholeness outside of us. The last one is the, the craving to feel nothing. Thanatos, the death instinct, annihilation. There's times where the pain is so much I just don't want to be here. There was a time in my life where one of my kids was the possibility of them having a severe illness and all I did was want to sleep all the time. And every moment when I woke up, it'd be all right for about a half a second till, I, till all of a sudden everything came flooding back, like, oh, what, what's going to happen? Fortunately, it worked out okay. He had mono instead of cancer. But it was, and then I realized, like, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about, because I often didn't relate to this craving to feel nothing, but I remember during that particular time, I just wanted to zone out. And then I began to realize, actually, that happens a lot in my life, not wanting to feel, not wanting to turn away, losing myself in books or puzzles or television or whatever it is to just get away from being right here because right here is painful. Just like, you know, I got done with that ice cream, like, what am I going to do now? I just don't want to, like, you know, there's that not wanting to be here to feel. It's very insidious. So from Simon and Garfunkel, I'm a rock, I'm an island. And a rock feels no pain, an island never cries. So these cravings for sensual delight, the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing, are places where one can get caught. And this perpetuates this field of suffering. So these teachings go on, the, the third and the fourth realizations, that if we can begin to have a cessation to lessen these cravings that's penetrated through developing awareness, they can lessen, they can actually um, eradicate. 
they can end. And there's the wonderful teaching that really sums up the entire teaching of the Dharma is what the Buddha calls the Eightfold Path. This path of, this is the path that leads to the end of suffering. And what is the end of suffering? We speak about it's the eradication of greed, hatred, and ignorance that exists in what we see and smell and taste and feel and hear and think. So it's this, and, and the tremendous peace that arises as we become free. Yeah. So this Eightfold Path, if there's ever a path for us to follow, and I know that tomorrow is, um, we're, we're heading out into our lives, and actually there's a punchline that the retreat's actually not over. Yeah, we're going to sh- shift the meditation center from here to our house and into our life, but actually your life is the practice, and what comes up in your life is the meditation, and wherever you go, here you are, and this is it. It took me a long time to realize that that my life is the practice. And what comes up in my life is where I bring attention to, whether it's waiting in a line, whether I'm I'm talking with my partner, whether I'm being with my kids, whether with my friends or work. This is like bringing our practice into our lives. And the, the Eightfold Path is such a powerful, beautiful path that supports the practice in our life. And it's the practices of living virtuously that we began with these precepts of non-harming, not stealing. In the practice uh, of this retreat, celibacy, but as we leave into the world, practicing uh, s- using our sexuality in ways that is not harming to another, to ourselves, to another. Practicing, instead of silence, wise speech that is useful, that is truthful, that is honest, that is beneficial, and so forth. It's timely. And the practices of, um, you know, some will say a wise use of, to not get yourself intoxicated, because when we're intoxicated, then everything else gets obscured. So these, the practical steps of, of of our wise actions of how we live our lives, developing our integrity, the wise effort, <coughs> wise livelihood, and the practices that help settle the mind and the heart that help to settle and develop wisdom of our mindfulness, our concentration, the efforting. It helps develop wisdom and understanding, intention, to do no harm. These are these beautiful teachings. So if there's anything, if I was ever to go to a desert island, I would take with me the Noble Eightfold Path. You know, one of the, the teachings in the Dharma that is so controversial that I want to just point to, I'm not going to speak a lot on it, but it's a very important teaching is, is this sense of self, or no self, or who is the self.
This is a very important question because, of course, the hallmark of often our Western civilization where Descartes declares, exclaims, I think, therefore I am. In Buddhist psychology, we're really beginning to investigate who is this self? It's actually very interesting in um, neuroscience, uh, the sense of there being a self um, is very difficult to find. Rick Hansen says from his book, um, and Richard Mendius, who's a n neurologist, that the neurological standpoint that the everyday feeling of being a unified self is actually an utter illusion. And the apparently coherent and solid I is actually built upon many subsystems and many sub-subsystems. As Dan Siegel says in a very um, beautiful and simple way, that the self is a plural verb, not a singular noun. But the sense of self, who is this self? And is it found in the head here, in the body here, the nails, the teeth, the skin? You know, do you know that, ev that every five days the body makes a new stomach lining? Makes a new liver every six weeks? Replaces new head here every two to five years, except for me. <laughs> <laughs> Grows new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to me read this sentence. Radioactive Isotype studies show that the body replaces about 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So, in other words, in any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So, if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as it was yesterday. And even when you think about the body and its ownership, the, the latest research is that we're actually about 10% human and 90% organisms. We're actually not a human being. We're a human biome. Even on one square inch of skin lies 32 million bacteria. And so this body is made of uh, many organisms. Very funny that this is actually uh, taught in ancient Buddhist uh, teachings. In one particular area, there's a, there's a heading, it's called Living with the Many. <laughs> and my teacher, Tampu Lucero, he decided for 81 straight nights to give 81 different talks on the 81 different families of organisms that live in the body. Those that live on the eyebrows, those that live in the mouth, those that live in the nostrils, those that live in the anus, those that live here and there and everywhere. And um, he went through this for 81 straight nights. I was there. <laughs> and... Um, he always ended each Dharma talk with a poem that he had us learn in Burmese. Po aim poza ikanda go i thudo i thodan thinjain pit i. And what that means is these organisms, they live in your body and they eat of it and they defecate and urinate in the body. And eventually they will meet a partner and copulate and have offsprings. And then gradually they will go old, grow old and they will die. And thus your body is a cemetery. 
It would always end with that, and then we'd go on the next day to the next group of organisms. Seto had a, he was great. He's my type of guy, you know, I like, I like this type of stuff. And he, he didn't hold anything back. <laughs> and, um, but this, this part, like, whose body is this? And who, who, who is this self? This is a very powerful question that we have to ask, and it's downright mysterious. We hear these words in Pali, anatta, non-self, the insubstantial nature of things. And I kind of like more like the ownerless nature of things. But it's, it's really kind of threatening. And it's really, in some ways, we could say very un-American. <laughs> Donald, there's no self. <laughs> or Hillary, for that matter. Whatever. This practice can kind of turn us a little bit upside down. A psychiatrist friend of mine once said, sent me an email after doing a third few parts of the body day long with me. He said, Bob, this practice is very disabusive. And I got kind of nervous. I didn't know what disabusive means, but it had the word abusive in it. And, and, and am I abusing my psychiatrist friend? So I had to go look it up in the dictionary. And actually, disabusive is a great word. Cause I looked up what it meant, and it said, it's like, it's like it's means something like when you, you kind of have an orientation of the world in a certain way, and all of a sudden it's turned kind of upside down. What you thought was to be so was totally discombobulated. And you can say... In some ways, that this practice has that aspect. It's like it's it, it's kind of shaking up our sense of identity. Like, well, who am I without my story? We might ask, which is probably one of the most liberating questions of the world, and probably one of the most curious questions. <coughs> to me. I have a, another aspect of how I understand anatta, or the sense of non-self, that I'd like to share with you, and it's more from a psychological basis. But when we look at the teachings of the Dharma, they are incredibly psychologically based. Because we want to understand that these entire teachings are based on the eradication of greed, hatred, and ignorance, which are psychological factors. And through the penetration of these, we can have emancipation. Someone asked me, well, what is enlightenment? Enlightenment is the end of suffering. In these practices, we're sitting, standing on the tip of the iceberg of, of potential human freedom, not just dealing with the vicissitudes of life this practice has, but with levels of emancipation and freedom beyond our imagination. Well, and again, we look at the opposites of greed, hatred, and ignorance. We're talking about contentment and ease, open-heartedness, and clarity of mind and heart that's breaking free of the grasping and the aversions. So to me, the sense of non-self, and I really feel this, I really sincerely believe this is true for me. And it's th th there's a lot of references in the teachings about the Buddha experiencing the unconditioned. I like that as a word because that implies that there's a condition. And to me that also implies that he broke through all of the conditioning 
that had enslaved him, that kept him on the wheel of suffering going around and around and around. He broke through that conditioning. Actually, the, the Buddha says it like this. This is the Buddha's lion's roar. I love this. Through many a birth I've wandered in samsara, seeking not seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again and again. O householder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken. Thy ridgepole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving and ignorance. That's the lion's roar of the Buddha on this awakening. It's breaking free of these conditions. And when we look at ourselves, we all have our stories and our narratives of our life, our history, right? I was brought up with Bob, and I have my life, I have my history, my first this and that. You know, like we all have our identities. We've developed our identities through our years of living, and we've individuated. And then at some point in your life, you saw what you individuated into, and that's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> And the rest of our life is to work with undividuating the individuation, or you can say untangling the tangle that we've tangled ourselves into, and we're investigating deeply into this tangle. How well, this is, the, this is what we get to work with, is my story, your story, our stories. This is what we're coming up against, our views, our opinions, our likes, our dislikes, and our wants, our not wants, the, you know, and it's based on all of our conditioning. The Buddha saw through this. And this is to me one of the most liberating aspects of these teachings when we begin to see that these stories that we've told ourselves that we believed in to be I, me, and my is not the whole truth. That they're limited definitions that have enslaved me. Many of us have had stories perhaps growing up that fed into that, as Chara says, that trance of unworthiness. Maybe you was taught that you're not pretty, but you're smart, or you, you're a good athlete, but you, you can't paint, or, you know, like, what? There's a million things. And there's times where we've been, like, they, they, we've been shamed. There's still seeds inside me, and when I was young, I, I still love peanuts even to this day. When I was young, my grandma, she knows that I love peanuts and she'd have like a bowl of peanuts in the f on a coffee table and Sundays we'd go over to my grandma's house, oh, I'd see the peanuts, I'm so happy, I want to go get them and get some peanuts. And my uncle Sidney, you know, maybe in his ignorance, like he just didn't know and it wasn't until years later I realized, like he, he used to always say, announce to everyone, here comes the claw, here comes the claw. I don't have a claw, I got fingers. <laughs> but it, w it was a shaming type of a thing. And sometimes we think it's just light. It's like, it doesn't mean much, but I'm just kidding. But for me, we hear stories of where we've been shamed, made to feel less than. And so the, these are parts of our identity and we're sitting here and we're coming up against it. It's here. So I want to say in spiritual practice, we cannot bypass this. I think like in the early years, people meditated in America because it was, it was wanting to get high. But, it, but in trying to bypass our personality. But I've really discovered we really can't do that. It's through embracing it and understanding it that we can begin to see that these stories that I've told myself are not necessarily true and, and there's freedom on the other side that's beyond our imagination.
It's only with awareness that we can begin to break that change. This is the liberating qualities of mindfulness. Margaret Wheatley she says in a very beautiful reading here, she says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. And we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. So again, this is the, the you know, mindfulness. When we succeed in moving outside of our processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance of changing. We begin to see these stories that we've told ourselves. This is the miracle of mindfulness, that we begin to see these stories and we can begin to become more free of them, these places that we get caught. Dorothy Hunt, she writes, no matter how many words arise in your mind, or how many places its musings travel, no matter how many thoughts or opinions it clings to, or how many attachments to how many stories, no matter how many shoots called projections or memories, or how many judgments it imagines are true, there is one single tendril wound around all the others. This must be unwound if you want to be free. The last one to drop is the one you most cherish, the one that insists its productions are real, the tendril that causes all of your suffering, the one that holds tightly to a thought called me. So I'm offering all of this tonight, it's a lot, but I, I feel like, like all of the teachings that have come before, and what brings us here is, is led to this place, like what's, what, what are we here for? To be more free, to understand more the nature of our mind and our heart, why we practice. So I want to say that, that we cannot bypass our personalities, but we can begin to work with them, to understand them, to see the places we've been caught by them and through them, and potentially begin to experience that these stories that have enslaved us no longer serve us. And perhaps as Naomi Shihab Nye recognizes at the end of her poem called Kindness, that it's only kindness that makes sense anymore as far as living our lives, to live with integrity and heart. To be wise in our ways. As we grow in wisdom, we get less caught when things don't go our way. We understand the nature that all things change. Our sense of grasping, our sense of aversion, 
begins to lessen. These are the teachings of the Dharma. It's very important as we do this deep work within our hearts that we care for ourselves with great compassion and great kindness. Because some of the things that we may say to ourselves, we may not even ever say to another because they're so filled with loathing. So this is also part of our work to heal our hearts. To offer ourselves compassion. I hear again and again in so many of the practice discussions of just how hard we can be on ourselves. So this is also part of the practice and I really feel in many ways if we define the word wisdom it comes up with insight and compassion and bringing those together we become wise. So even in the way that we practice with ourselves we've been wanting to infuse these practices of great kindness and compassion for these you know this part that's crying out within you that's judging you that's that's so scared it's just crying out love me love me can i begin to open into my heart with compassion and these practices of the heart can begin to break some of the narcissism some of this self-centered desperation of trying to get something that is actually elusive. So, I think we're just about enough and um, Now let's just sit for a minute. So my teacher, Tampu Lucero, he used to uh, offer this little short meditation for us. And he actually taught this meditation every day for three months straight. So this was 90 days. And... This was the last teaching that he offered us. He came, I also studied with him in Burma, and he came to the United States a number of times and offered teachings. And this was his last set of teachings, and uh, when he came back, that was the last time he was in America, and he died uh, some months later. And for many years, I, I kind of just wondered about these teachings and this very simple meditation. And then it just really began to grow deep in me to appreciate the deep wisdom of this very simple practice. And he said that this is a very good meditation uh, if you can die this way. And also, um, it's a meditation that sometimes people think that enlightenment is so far away. I'll never get there. <laughs> so I think that this meditation also gives us a little hors d'oeuvre, a little taste that the taste of freedom is not so far away whenever we let go. And so just breathing in and breathing out. And so it'll call this meditation Ragakine Dodakine Mohakine. 
And so as you breathe in and breathe out, just letting yourself experience with just this breath, this, this no future, no past here, but just this breath in and breath out, just experiencing what it's like to have no greed inside you. So actually you could say in its place, there's a sense of contentment and ease as you breathe in and breathe out. Try it on, just for a breath or two, no greed, in its place, contentment and ease. There's nothing that you need to get, nothing that has to be pushed away. Just here and now, contented in with ease. Breathing in, breathing out, no greed. And as we transition the reflections continuing with the breath in and out, experiencing no hatred, that the heart is just beginning to open, with some gentleness, with great kindness, no aversion, no hatred. The heart's becoming open, born out of that sense of ease of being. Breathing in, breathing out, no hatred. Gently, as we breathe in and out, there's no ignorance. As a matter of fact, in its place is clarity because it understands that the causes of suffering is our greed and our hatred, and it's being replaced with ease and an open heart. The stories that have enslaved us are dissolving. In this presence, there's a wakefulness. There's aliveness the heart that's free of grasping and aversion, seeing clearly into the nature of things. These are the teachings of the Buddha. So we can practice this anytime, and um, you know I, I've been working with this for years. It's this invitation, just just for this moment. Can I breathe in and breathe out, and the falling away of any wantings, in its place gives rise to contentment and ease. Breathing in and out, the falling of any not wantings, and 
in, in its place, the open heart. Breathing in and out, clarity, no longer caught in the grasping and the version in its place of spaciousness. Born out of contentment and ease, an open heart, and this wisdom, this understanding of not being so caught with these stories that have enslaved us. This is a possibility for all of us, and we can momentarily experience this, and as we practice, this experience will grow. This experience will grow and grow. And I trust you already know about this because you've tasted already by turning in and beginning to acknowledge, beginning to see more clearly into things you too have experienced, some sense of, some understanding or insight and may this build confidence in the practice to keep on keeping on. So thank you so much and um, we'll carry on with our practice.